Stories and side gigs of the research and insights pros that you trust. Today's guest is Ben Depke, principal at IX Strategy, based in the fine city of Cincinnati, Ohio, where I spent seven years of my life and is the home of the soon to be Super Bowl champion Cincinnati Bengals. <laughs> we'll see about that. <laughs> I don't want to jinx it. So, so Ben is a really interesting guy. His unique perspective and interest in Greater human meaning and understanding is embedded in the work that they do at IX Strategy, which encompasses ideation, insight, strategy, and training. But research was not Ben's first career. In fact, Ben spent years touring the country as a professional musician and songwriter, most notably with a band called Homunculus, which saw some indie success in the 1990s. Now, I've heard some of Ben's music, and I would say that it's intensely creative and oftentimes surprising. So uh, it didn't shock me to hear from one of Ben's clients uh, when he said that Ben is a really incisive thinker and is deeply passionate about the human condition. So I'm super excited to have Ben on the podcast here today. Welcome to the show, Ben. Matt, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here, excited to jump into the conversation with you. Awesome. Well, speaking of jumping into the conversation, so usually, usually I start by asking, hey, how'd you get into research? But as we talked before, uh, there's a really interesting through line, I think, that's, that sort of carries throughout your, uh, your whole story. So we might change it up a little bit and take you all the way back. So tell us a little bit about your story growing up and how that brought you to uh, being a musician and ultimately to research. I gave you the floor. I appreciate it. Uh, so if we go back to childhood, uh, I grew up on a goat farm. <laughs> and on That's the real, side, right? yeah, like most people do. Uh, it was on the side of a hill overlooking a little creek on a gravel road there. And, uh, you know, the whole time, I, growing up, I was going to school in the city. Uh, I went to a few different schools, but they were all in the city. Mm -hmm. And so there was always this back and forth, right? Where I'm home, I'm at the goat farm, no neighbors. Uh, and then suddenly, over the course of 30 minutes, I'm transported literally and figuratively into a totally different environment. Right. An environment where People know each other. People have inside jokes. People go to each other's houses on the weekends. They're watching TV. I didn't even have a TV. Right. And, and so from the very beginning, I was experiencing something that uh, I only in later years started to identify as otherness. Uh, but the way I internalized it was just simply through curiosity. Like, mm -hmm. why don't I understand what's going on? Why do people look at me strangely? So forth and so on, right? Right. I'll skip through all these formative events to get 
through uh, into college where I took up a psychology major because I was trying to figure out what all this was about. I was really, essentially, I'm trying to figure out what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. um, and I studied cognitive psych. Um, it, parts of it were really rewarding and wonderful for me. And then parts weren't like cognitive psych puts an emphasis on observable data. Mm -hmm. And that was an outage for me because again, like if we come back to sort of my reason for being, it's like, what does it mean to be human? I'm trying to figure this out. And yet so much of the human experience is invisible. Right. It's, it's untrackable. Um, there is magic to us. And so anyway, like already that sort of those seeds of disillusion were taking root. And so I did what any uh, self-respecting person would do in that situation. I joined a band uh, <laughs> and I started touring full time and we were doing about 140, 150 shows a year, wow. just LA to New York, back and forth and back and forth. And it was fun, man. It's, uh, you know, a lot of the things that people would associate with being in a band that are awesome, they're awesome. And some parts aren't awesome. Some parts, some parts are really hard. Um, but what, what would you say the, the awesome and the not so awesome are? Just yeah, for example. Um, so the awesome part, especially uh, in that sort of DIY vein, which I identify with really strongly. Um, you know, I, I like just being out there with my little de facto family, you know, right. Everybody loads out theoretically together. And then when you set up and play a show and you break down again, theoretically together, I was the one loading in and out all the time. <laughs> Sometimes we got help. Somebody's not all the time. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, I think that bonding is was beautiful. And I, I really, I have some really special memories of just, you know, visiting new places and meeting new people and dragging the same 50 songs up onto a stage and trying them out in front of people who'd never heard it before. And that was cool. Yeah. That was really cool. Um, and I think there are other aspects too. Like when you're writing a song, you start out like you're kind of writing it for yourself, like to get something off your chest, get something that is inside out so that you don't go crazy. Right. Um, but then once you're on stage, it's different. Uh, once you're on stage, there's a much more relational thing happening. And that's interesting too, right? You're taking something that was very personal. Right. And now you're creating something that is much more interpersonal. Right. Which I mostly enjoy. Like I tend to be pretty introverted. Um, and I think sometimes that was misunderstood by folks uh, <laughs> because I didn't uh, I didn't hang out so much after the show. 
Um, but, uh, and that was, I think, some of the hard parts for me, really. Yeah. Uh, like, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I loved the music and I loved the people I was playing music with. And that was it. That's it. Like, I didn't need any of the extra stuff. And there's a lot of extra stuff. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, I think that was hard for me. Um, just being surrounded by strangers all the time who felt like in many cases they knew you because you took that personal stuff and you put it out there. And right, right. Yeah. They, you know, they have some line of sight into who you are and what you're about. Yeah. That's uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's interesting. Yeah. And then, you know, if you're I think, you know, we were not making a ton of money and boring stuff like health insurance, like I wasn't insured, yeah. you know? So, you know, when stuff happens and stuff always happens when you're in a band, like it's expensive mm -hmm. to get hurt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you can find out like firsthand, like it's expensive to be poor, which is another subject. But um, through a lot of that, like those formative years, uh, became ultimately the bedrock for my turn into research. Okay. Yeah, I mean, couldn't do it forever. You know, pretty soon, like that touring schedule and that <laughs> that financial situation, it takes its toll. And so after a while, I quit <clears throat> and tried to get jobby jobs, but. I, I don't know what my deal is. Like, I'm not really employable. Um, <laughs> I, can't, I make a bad employee. I, I want to know more about things, like a lot of things, right. all the time. And, I'm, and that makes me not good at just sort of following instructions. Right. right. <laughs> What, what made you choose, so when you decided to uh, sunset your career, uh, put it on the shelf, what made you turn to research? Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> um, a friend of a friend got me involved with uh, uh, AC Nielsen Basie's quantitative sales forecasting. Yeah. And man, I met some really special people through that job but I was terrible at it. <laughs> you know, I shouldn't have got the job in the first place, but one of my favorite periods of literature is the Harlem Renaissance. And as it turned out, the president of client service, it's also his favorite period of literature. <laughs> so we instantly clicked talking about Hart yeah. Crane and Langston Hughes. And um, that doesn't really have anything to do with quantitative sales forecasting although like i think he was hoping that like somehow i could help <laughs> tell the story and the numbers or something yeah so i got fired for being terrible um <laughs> i met uh, i met somebody afterward who was a fan of the band and they were like well, yeah of course you got fired you know quantitative sales forecasting you're too creative for that band guy <laughs> and so <laughs> They said, well, you should, you know, go be an account executive, uh, which I 
tried to do at an agency here in town called uh, Barefoot, now part of BBDO. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, we need you to keep track of time and money and make the client happy. I said, this is not going to work out. I don't care about any of those things. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to do that. <laughs> Least of all, making a client happy. Like a client's happiness is their business. I can, all I can do is reflect meaning back into your life. Like, I can't make you happy. <laughs> Go read some Viktor Frankl, right? Come on. Anyway, so I got fired from, for being terrible there. <laughs> um, right. It's a lot of getting fired and like things not working out, which again, like feeds into the bedrock of, I think, where I am today. <laughs> Um, friend of a friend of a friend was like, oh, you know, don't give up hope and just become a jaded piano teacher, which is what I was becoming. Uh, they said, probably, you know, there's probably a good one. I, an awful good one to watch. Yeah, uh, well, depends on the student, I suppose. Um, uh, I, I found uh, this company called Seek. Uh, and they, they brought me on and I think I was employee number seven. And I was just so nervous that I was going to get fired again, that, you know, long story short, and I didn't know that this is what it was called at the time, but I started designing my research, right? Maniacally designing my research, because I figured if I'm very, very detailed in my research plan, and I show it to them and they're like, yeah, we won't fire you for doing that. Then I'll just do that. And then I won't get fired. Like fail safe plan. <laughs> that was my motivation. For, yeah. For designing research. Uh, I didn't get fired. I got better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I started to see what works just through small little research design decisions. Right. And early on, I, I like it was coming at me in waves, right? People share more when they trust you. And so a lot of the training and what was passing for like base knowledge in the qualitative realm, which is like a good qualitative researcher isn't biased, you know, so you should like keep a, like don't react too much to when people share things with you. And we would practice with each other, like trying to remain stoic while another person said something surprising. Dude, that's the opposite. I'm sorry. Like if you're going to establish trust, you have to respond. Right, Um, right. And honestly, Matt, it's a lot like being on stage. Um, If the audience is giving you something different, Mm -hmm. then what you were putting out, you can either continue to try to ram something down their throat yeah, or you can respond to what they're giving you and create a sort of circuitry that's going to draw more out of them, which ultimately is what we were trying to do in a, in a show context, but 100% transferable to research. Yeah. Like, you tell me a story, I need to be able to show you that, oh, my God, like, that's awesome. Or that's surprising. Yeah. Or, or even like, I don't, 
I don't believe you. Like some of that back and forth, some of that playfulness just shows that you are paying deep attention and that you actually care. Yeah. So little things like that started to pile up. Um, and yeah, I got to a point where, and we can get to this later, but I realized we were learning far more about people than they knew they were divulging. Mm -hmm. Which became an ethical consideration for me. And, And so at some point you're like, how much of this am I gonna transmit to my client? And if I do transmit it to my client, am I willing to hold my client accountable to this person's pain point and to continue to advocate and represent and push the client into corrective behavioral adaptations. And I was, but I felt like a lot of the people around me at the time were not. And so I just became more and more zealous until I finally just, I think I just stepped off the cliff. And for the last five years, I've been running my own thing. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. So, so you developed some sense of responsibility to the participants that were providing insight. Totally. So talk, talk a little bit about that. What, what does that encompass for you? Well, here at Nine, we talk about insight as a covenant. Uh, that if you were able to glean something that was deeply personal from a person who didn't voluntarily offer it up, and then you make the decision to share that knowledge with all these strangers, you better back it up. You better follow through. Uh, That's because if, if, if you don't, to me, it registers as exploitation, like full stop. It, it perpetuates what unfortunately I think is very common, especially in the marketing world, uh, which is this uh, pattern of empty promises, the sort of the vibration of substance rather than the substance itself. And I feel like a lot of that is it rests on that transfer between researcher and marketer. Um, You know, I feel like if you're going to promise to somebody that by using your detergent, you are going to break through all the numbness and BS and self-defeatism of your devolving role as a parent, uh, follow through. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't just give us the feeling. That's disingenuous. And let's come back to that word unethical. Like, again, like, I, I know the podcast that we are recording right now references rock and roll. I mean, there's a parallel. Like, why were you doing this? Why'd you get into this? Why are you wasting your life tricking people into buying shit they don't need. Yeah. That's not right. And so like, 
I had that, that same ethos when I was playing music, like how real can we make this? How substantial can we make this? How raw, how honest can we make this? I'm, I'm probably even more that way now. Yeah. And, and so I chafe, I chafe, frankly, when I, when I see most of the crap that's flying around out there right now, it, it bothers me. Yeah, really, uh, really interesting perspective. Uh, so rather than just take the tenets of what research is all about, and I mean, you started out by following the rules, but then you yeah. see the opportunities to break them and where you should break them, or you even are obligated to break them. So totally. interesting. So with that perspective, let me, let me ask you this. Um, so if you think about, the future, uh, it can be near and future of, of research. Um, what does that look like? Or maybe what, sh what should that look like? I am gonna give you what I think is a really unsexy response. And I apologize in advance. I, I imagine you might have guests come on here and talk about AR and VR and all this NFT crypto situation and Meta, dude. Big data. Yep. All I'm of sorry. that. I, maybe all of that goes somewhere. My guess is, unless we clean up our situation physically in the meat world, <laughs> it's not going anywhere good. I find that most technological approaches to insight are avoidant and escapist, um, new for the sake of new, new for the sake of I'm bored and oh, well, we could try this, mm -hmm. rather than staring down the demon. And <laughs> now again, like that sounds pretty rock. Um, But that's the deal, man. Look, you cannot run from your body. Your consciousness, your very personhood is embedded in your body. And you can project that out into the digital world. You can create these disembodied avatars, but they're still injected with your instinct that now is detached from your body that's dangerous. That's really dangerous. Like it only amplifies the disconnection that most humans already experience and have experienced for the last 20,000 years. Yeah. Uh, frankly, I would say the optimistic future of insight is probably a return to indigenous wisdom. It is a return to our bodies and our ability to look inward and to honor each other and honor each other's existence in a respectful and reverent way. Um, like insight is supposed to be seeing in. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, man, I would say as an industry, there's a propensity to do anything but. Interesting. 
really interesting perspective um, on that. And I know you're you're a very well-read individual. So um, I'm curious to know, as um, you think about, I mean, this is a podcast. Um, curious to know what sources you turn to. Doesn't have to be a podcast or a blog. Uh, authors that uh, that you appreciate. Where do you turn to for um, insight, wisdom, inspiration? Well, I gotta say that <laughs> uh, what Gladwell has done with the Pushkin uh, media group is incredible. Like Broken Records uh, or Broken Record, I don't remember what um, what's his name, the producer from Rick Rubin. Um, that podcast is awesome so is the uh what is it called hold on it's like into the void or something in between worlds or something um what is it just a second i'll tell you into the zone oh my gosh so good like it really explores these uh themes that are very central to my work which are about liminality, right? This sort of in-between region uh, as you examine opposites, like continuing to find new opposites that will once again put you back into that fluid, ambiguous space, which is necessary for deeper relationship, which is necessary for richer creativity. There's a whole podcast dedicated to it. That's awesome. Um, what else? So non-podcast stuff. I mean, obviously like books. Um, shoot, like I'm reading this one right now. Uh, Mary Louise Franz. Um, the Interpretation of Fairy Tales. Um, I think if you're not reading fairy tales, you're blowing it. Um, you absolutely have to be reading fairy tales. If you want to understand more about the hidden layers of the human condition, it's in fairy tales, um, which is a very Jungian uh, yeah. observation, but I have no shame in that. <laughs> uh, also, I would say on a more topical or sociocultural level, um, check out, uh, it's called Radical Help by Hilary Cottom. Okay. Um, and she talks a lot about relationship, deep relationship being the foremost uh, and most effective agent for creating social change. Um, there is a very, it's too small for you to see, but there's a quote over on my wall uh, by Jill Soloway, who wrote uh, the series Transparent. Um, mm -hmm. And she says, when you change the way people feel about something, you are changing the culture. Uh, and that's very much built into the way Hillary Cottom and her radical help book talks about like, look, you cannot rely on the system to change things, whether that's uh, government policy or whether that's like best in class marketing practices. Like, sorry, work the relationship, understand the depth, like put yourself out into that space, let yourself be affected the change that comes out of those interactions, if you are aware of it, if you're conscious of it, if you're intentional about those changes, 
That's how you affect the system. Um, so anyway, that radical help book is fantastic. Um, yeah, and so that and like a bunch of folk tales and fairy tales and mythology, like that, a steady diet of all that. Okay, cool, cool. Um, I want to interject one one last question, just kind of getting back to research. Uh, sure. Um, I know that um, you're really sort of on a search for truth and really getting beyond the superficial uh, when you're doing research with participants. I'm interested to know what some of the um, methodologies or, or tools are that you use to get closer to truth. I am thinking about the most succinct way to share this. Firstly, I would say most of my clients don't actually know who they're targeting. Um, they have a segmentation. It's usually garbage. Um, most of them don't really have a design target. And if they do, it exists as what they would call a persona, which is a cartoon of a person. And the, the definitions tend to be fairly static. Where for me, like if you're going to do good research, you have to begin with the correct assumptions. An assumption being that persona is Latin for mask. And persona is something that anybody, any of the 10 billion folks on this planet can pick up and put on. Anybody. So don't point to a person and tell me that she is quote unquote, an indulger, right? Don't point to some person and say that, oh, you know, they're the whatever, like the soccer mom, come on, come on, come on with that. I find I so it is so reductive. It is so anti-human. Right. Like, we have to have those tough conversations right up front. And so instead, what we do is we try to peel back the stories that the brand has been living from its origin. We try to understand its primal myth. Uh, it's one of the reasons that you know, we talk about what we do as brand mythology. Um, and so we look at those stories, we find the patterns, and we build a recruit off of those patterns. So when we talk about psychographics, I am talking about archetypal patterns. Um, and that means there's a universality to them, which therefore means you can trust it. <laughs> if it's not universal, you can't trust it. Right. 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 So we have to start from that layer of depth. Then you can add on other things that are more demographic. You can add on things that are related to category attitudes and whatnot. So it's about getting that design target and maybe it's valence is correct. Um, and so that's the first thing when you talk about method. And that's an important part. Like, where are you going to dig? You better find the right artery before you spend the next two months, three months going deep, right? Yeah. <clears throat> but from a method standpoint, I would say uh, we've evolved quite a bit. Uh, industry standard when they're talking about ethnography is go park your ass on a couch for an hour and a half that's not ethnography that's an idi that you decided to do on their couch and more recently like in the past couple of years now it's an idi that you do like this right and they would call that 
Right. And they might call it digital ethnography, or maybe like if they're saying digital ethnography, maybe it's because this person has a GoPro on their head. Yeah. Look, I'm, I'm not here to try to correct what other people are doing. I'm trying to get right what I'm doing. Ethnography for me requires get your damn body in the space and do everything you possibly can to access an emic perspective. You have to be able to get to that point where the voices from the inside of that community, where the lived experience is speaking for itself. You have to be able to get to that point. So for us, that means drastically smaller base sizes. Drastically. Okay. Don't come at me with a 30, 40 participant request because we're not going to do it. Right. Um, unless we're talking about seven or eight different segments. Okay. Right. We, we want much smaller base sizes. We want much longer exposure times. And we also want to break those exposures into multiple touch points. Some of those will be digital, like remote, like what we're doing now. But a lot of those are going to be in person. Or my favorite, when you are moving between sites, right? I'm going to, I'm going to go with you to your kid's school to drop off the lunch that they forgot at home. Moving with a person from one space to the next, those transition moments, oh, from a method standpoint, we actively seek those out. Okay. Um, and then the other thing is like, we, we discourage on-site note-taking um, because we're trying to form a personal connection. Right. And yeah. it's a little dweeby to sit there while you're talking and I'm clipboarding it, you know? Right. Uh, so what we, what we try to do with said is like a voice memo. Right. Um, and, you know, you can take some pictures and I think sometimes that's really cool, especially if you hand the camera to the participant mm -hmm. and ask them to take pictures. Um, that can be very, like, to just a much more genuine perspective. And then when there is writing, it's after the exposure, immediately after the exposure. Um, so rather than the nervous uh, <laughs> twittering that happens when a research team piles back into the research car, yeah. we, we don't allow talking for 20, 30 minutes. You independently reflect, and then you can start sharing. But first, get real about where you are, what you experienced, and what was activated in you. Yeah. And then you can start externalizing everything. So. so that's really, really smart. Um, it seems like a small point, um, but your, your real experience can get lost very quickly in conversation. Totally. Yeah. Matt, I experienced that on stage. Like, it's like I referenced before, you know, you write this song and it's deeply personal. And then you, once you share it, it's like, it still has that personal residue, but now it's got all this other stuff on it, which right. is kind of exciting and fun and beautiful, but it's not just yours anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I could, I could, I could talk this all day and would love to have a follow-up conversation. On some of these yeah, for sure. Um, but um, you know, we gotta, we gotta wrap it up sometime. Um, and so it is the rock and roll research podcast, right? I don't want to, um, I want to be honest about that. And I want to represent the, uh, the 
podcast correctly. So uh, gotten to the most important question, um, the yeah. hardest one to answer, of course. So you're stranded on a desert island, Ben, and I'm really interested to know, uh, having heard your music, I'm just really interested to know your answers, but you're stranded on a desert island. You've got three records at your disposal, your choice to keep you company for the rest of your days. What are they? Um, so, no, I'm going to stick with, I'm going to stick with the three that I first come to mind. So, um, there's War Paint, uh, California band. Uh, they have an album, it's a few years old now. It's called Heads Up. Okay. It's pretty fantastic. Cool. I don't know those guys. Oh, yeah, that's fine. And I mean, to me, like, some might call them post-punk or whatever. They're just rock band. Like they're just a great, no bullshit rock band. And I have a soft spot on that. That's that sounds like it's up my alley. Okay, cool. Um, or pain. And then, I, and then I think uh, you know maybe pulling off of the rock motif a little is uh, Thelonious Monk live at the five spot uh, discovery. Yeah. And I mean, Thelonious, what I love about his music is he, of course, is a creative genius, like from a songwriting standpoint, from an improvisation standpoint, but also like from an attitude standpoint, like Thelonious right. used to play piano with a cigarette between his fingers. Yeah. And he's playing these big clunky runs with a cigarette between his fingers. <laughs> and when I hear his music, I feel all that. Yeah. And so being able to reconfigure my emotional state just based off of that is worth it. And I imagine I would need that on the desert island. And <laughs> so the final one would be Ian Hawgood. Um, and Ian... I, th I think if I started to go totally crackers on the island, Ian would calm me down. Okay. Uh, um, he, uh, what was the name of that record? Like, we're better for being built this way, I think is what it's called. Okay. And it's, there is a blend of electronic and acoustic instruments in there, but it's, it's pretty transcendent. Um, and I, I really think I would need that um, yeah. if I were stranded. Like, those first couple years on the island would be dope, but uh, <laughs> I'd start to miss people after a little while. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, very interesting choices. Uh, very cool. Um, hey, Ben, I really appreciate it. Uh, glad we had a chance to meet. <clears throat> I love your story. Um, there's so much more to dig into, uh, but I really appreciate you sharing your story with us today on the podcast. Thanks so much, Ben. Let's talk soon and rock and roll. Right up. All right.